Oxford, I remember bits of what happened so many years ago. It's a bit trip down Amnesia Lane, as it were. And the, the other is, just as just the kind of audience I very much enjoy talking to, and the third reason is this is an opportunity for Ian McGilchrist and I to have the conversation we've been sort of promising ourselves for about the last five years. So it's, it's great. Uh, um, we, you will find that he and I disagree on some things, but actually have some kind of fundamental agreement, sort of existential agreement, probably. But I hopefully, uh, as well as presenting our own positions, you will see some, an interesting interference pattern uh, between what we, we have to say. Now, I want to check that I'm audible. Um, otherwise, not, no point being here, I guess. But can I just check at the back? Can you hear me all right? Great. Super duper. Fine. Well, this is my theme, Am I My Brain? And we are repeatedly told that we are our brains. No less an authority than this character, Baroness Greenfield, the public face of British neuroscience, asserts this. And in fact, recently, Dick Schwab has published a book called We Are Our Brains. So I suppose you better pay attention. But do we need to believe that we are our brains? Are you your brain? And the short answer is no. But I think I owe a longer answer than that for those of you who wish to doze off at this stage. That's absolutely fine. This is the conclusion to which I'm going to make a rather long journey. Now, inevitably, this talk is going to be a little superficial, uh, but I want to set out some of the reasons why I think it's wrong to regard people as being identical to their brains and a mistake to talk about brains when we should be talking about people. I'm going to deal with saying with nothing thoroughly and if you want the arguments, they are set out in full in this book, which Marin referred to, Aping Mankind, author's plug and so on and so forth, available fairly cheap in all good bookshops and on Amazon. And if you're, an, if you're a masochist, you might want to explore further and read this trilogy, where I set out the differences between us and our brains, between persons and organisms, in pitiless detail. So that's enough of the advertisements. Let's get down to business. Now... First of all, I want to list some of the ways in which persons or selves or whatever are supposed to be identical with their brains. Then I'm going to suggest why so many people are inclined to see this identity or to argue for this identity. In fact, they see it as plain common sense, validated by neuroscience. After these preliminaries, I'll set out the reasons for denying that persons are brains or their brains, and that's going to occupy most of my talk. Finally, I'll say something about the challenges that have to be met if we establish that brains and persons are not identical. Where do we go from here? Now, there are many ways of identifying brains with persons, such that person identity is claimed to be brain identity and personal history is brain history. For example, the notion that persons are all of their brains or persons are parts of their brains or persons are the software implemented in the hardware of the brain or more recently in the uh, favourite phrase, personal, fashionable phrase, persons are connectomes, how their brains are wired up. This does leave a residual ambiguity between what we might call the functional structure of the brain and the, neuro, that's the, structure, and the neural activity taking place in that structure. And this is mirrored in a further ambiguity in the idea of a person, as on the one hand, a set of standing characteristics, propensities to feel or to act, on the one hand, and on the other, the sum total of what they have actually done and actually felt. But I think I've complicated things enough already, so I want to set aside that for the present. I'll be happy, of course, to discuss it in discussion time. Now, the notion that the person is identical with all of the brain was proposed by Hippocrates two and a half thousand years ago, so it isn't, as it were, a brand new shiny idea. As he said in his treatise on epilepsy, 
men ought to know that from the brain and from the brain only arise our pleasures, joys, laughter and jests, as well as our sorrows, pains, grief and tears. Through it, in particular, we think, see, hear and distinguish the ugly from the beautiful, the bad from the good, the pleasant from the unpleasant. And this sounds remarkably similar to what Francis Crick said a decade or two ago. Your joys and sorrows, your memories and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behaviour of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. Hypocrisies a bit updated. Although Crick, in common with many others, thought that the self was located in part of the brain and not the whole of it. And his favoured spot was one called, an area called the claustrum, deep in the hemispheres, where many neural pathways converged. A choice of location that illustrates a fallacy that I want to look at in due course. So these are some of the ways personhood is construed as being identical with activity in the brain. But why on earth do we think we might find personhood, or the person, or the self in the brain? Well, there are reasons rooted in everyday observation, and reasons that seem to take their rise from neuroscience. So first of all, I want to deal with some homely observations that seem to justify thinking that you might be identical with your brain. The most obvious one is that the hair of the eye is located where the brain is. The brain, or at least the head that contains it, is seen to define the centre of egocentric space, the space that I relate to. Insofar as that space has coordinates, I am their point of origin, and that, indeed my brain seems to be their point of origin. So if my brain is in a particular room in Oxford, so am I. My history and the spatio-temporal history of my brain are inseparable. So that's the first homely observation. Secondly, there are the effects of brain damage. Severe brain damage may lead to loss of consciousness and loss of personhood. And less severe brain damage causes impairment or alteration of consciousness and changes in personality. Now, of course, these homely observations have been supplemented, as many of you will know, by a huge body of knowledge about the impact of injury to or dysfunction of different parts of the brain on every aspect of behaviour and awareness. And that's superbly summarised <coughs> in Ian's book, The Master and His Emissary, a mighty work of scholarship. Recordings made from the brains of living subjects using technologies such as the elect electroencephalogram and various kinds of brain scans such as functional magnetic resonance imaging have demonstrated extraordinary correlations of neural activity with the level of consciousness. Being alert, being drowsy, being asleep, being comatose and so on. Your history probably as you're listening to my voice. Correlations also with the contents of consciousness, perception, memory, emotion, thought. And less closely, but to some people still very impressively, with propensities to behave in certain ways. So it seems reasonable to conclude from this that every aspect of the consciousness of a person, from the most primitive sensation to the most exquisitely constructed sense of self, depends in some sense, or is caught up with, brain activity. And also that the location, the pattern, and the distribution of brain activity is predictably associated with experiences, moods, and so on and so forth. And of course, we are justified in concluding from this 
that to live a normal life as a person requires a brain in good working order. If you chop my head off, I become, not, I become less even less interesting uh, than I am at the moment. And as someone whose research was entirely in the field of clinical neuroscience, I wouldn't, of course, dispute this. But the question then raises, are we justified in concluding from this that to live a normal life as a person is to be a brain in some kind of working order? Because that's the hypothesis uh, that I'm uh, looking at and will be critiquing. Are we justified in concluding that the brain is not only a necessary but also sufficient condition of personhood? That persons and brains are the same, that you are your brain. Now let me just very briefly explain what I mean by the difference between necessary and sufficient conditions. In order to be knocked down by a bus in Oxford, it's necessary to be in Oxford. I'm pleased to report this is not a sufficient condition, otherwise I wouldn't be giving this lecture and you would be spending uh, this afternoon under buses, which is manifestly, as far as I can tell, not the case. So we can argue that the brain is certainly a necessary condition of consciousness, personhood, etc., etc., but is it a sufficient condition? Can we say when we look at the standalone brain, or indeed the brain interacting with the environment, that this is you. Now, in order to answer this question as to the way, whether the brain is not only a necessary but also a sufficient condition of personhood, I'm going to look at some aspects of personhood and see whether they could possibly be identical with what goes on the brain. And the aspects I want to look at are listed on the slide. Consciousness, which of course is a sine qua non of personhood, as that in virtue of which the world has phenomenal appearances and which from perception upwards has something called intentionality, which I'm going to talk about in due course. Another aspect is first-person being, which underpins having or being a viewpoint. Each of you in this room is a viewpoint on the world around you. I'm also going to look at the unity of consciousness at any particular time, the extraordinary phenomenon by which different aspects of uh, my perception, memory, thoughts and so on all come together in some way in a, in a conscious moment. The mystery of co-consciousness. And finally I'm going to look at the temporal depth of consciousness, the sense of me, of an I that is extended over time backwards and to some extent forwards into the future. The persistent sense of I and the sense that I am persistent. That the person who agreed to give this lecture is also the person who's giving it. Now, a fifth aspect of personhood, very important, is agency or free, free will. It's far too big a topic to fit into this talk, but I just mention in case you think I've forgotten it. And I'm certainly very happy to discuss in our question time whether or not neuroscience has anything at all to say about whether we are free agents. Well, let's begin at the beginning with consciousness. Is brain activity sufficient for consciousness? So we can identify activity in all or part of the brain with consciousness. Now before I deal with the ar arguments against this, let me set aside a red herring, an empirical red herring. Some of you may know it's possible by direct brain stimulation to cause individuals to have quite complex experiences. The most famous example, example, most famous example is the work of the neurosurgeon Wilder Penfield, reported way back in the 1950s. He stimulated the cerebral cortex of waking subjects in order to map their brains prior 
to doing surgery for epilepsy because he wanted to make sure that his knife didn't remove vital areas such as those associated with speech. He found that when certain areas were stimulated, the patients would not only have simple sensations, but often quite complex experiences, corresponding to previously dormant memories of past events. And this would seem to suggest to some people that experiences could be generated in the standalone brain. And indeed, as suggested in the brain in the vat thought experiment, the central idea of the film Matrix, the entire consciousness of a person could be created or constructed by stimulation of the inputs into a brain suspended in a bath of nutriment. Well, I think the conclusion from Wilder Penfield's experiments, and indeed some of them subsequently, is invalid. First, you have to remember, as I've mentioned already, that Penfield's subjects were already awake. In other words, the background wakefulness required for the experiences to be had and to be interpreted as a childhood memory or whatever was provided quite independently of the stimulation. Secondly, the experiences would not have counted as memories of the subject's own past except in relation to a life prior to the moment of stimulation in which the experiences have been had in the usual way and subsequently qualified as memories. One patient, for example, reported recalling or having the memory of a circus coming to town when she was six. Well, clearly she could not have had that memory if she had not had the experience of the circus coming to town when she was six, leaving aside uh, false memory syndromes and so on. So I want to set aside that red herring, the idea that, of course, um, consciousness, and of course, neural activity in a standalone brain uh, can create consciousness because by stimulating the brain, uh, you can produce elements of conscious activity. I hope I've nailed that, but I'm happy to argue the toss further if necessary. Now, I want to now focus on the arguments. And I really, they really are essentially, I think they're metaphysical arguments. Although it's often regarded as an empirical issue, whether or not consciousness and, and neural activity are identical, I think ultimately they are metaphysical. And I hope I persuade you of that by the time I've finished. Because I want to, before I consider the particular features of personhood, uh, whether or not they could be plausibly located in the brain or identified with activity in a bit of the brain or all of the brain, I want to rephrase the question. I want to remind you, and I don't want to insult the brain, but I, when in all said and done, it is a piece of matter. It is a giblet, a very posh giblet, high-order giblet, but in the end, it's a piece of matter. And then, so the question can be rephrased as to whether or not a piece of matter could have or generate the consciousness that is necessary to be a person. If not, then the brain couldn't be a person. Now, by a piece of matter, I mean a piece of something whose definitive description or most authoritative portrait is to be found in the physical sciences. This has been part of the neuroscientist's creed for a long time. As witness this quote from a leading 19th century biologist, one of the founders of neurophysiology, Dubois Raymond. What did he say? Brooker, who was his colleague at the time, Brooker and I pledged a solemn oath to put into power this truth. No other forces than the common physical chemical ones are active within the organism, and that would, in course, include the brain. They were setting aside ideas of vital force and so on and so forth. More recently, this has been updated by Daniel Dunette. There was a little bit of hedging as to whether physics or biology or other natural sciences are the last word. And it's worthwhile thinking about this quote. What does Dunette say? 
There's only one sort of stuff, namely matter. The physical stuff of physics, chemistry and physiology. And the mind is somehow nothing but a physical phenomenon. In short, the mind is the brain. We can, in principle, account for every mental phenomenon using the same physical principles, laws and raw materials that suffice to explain radioactivity, continental drift, photosynthesis, reproduction, nutrition and growth. Well, you can't get clearer than that. So he's putting his hide out on the line massively. So we go to consciousness. The case for the identity of consciousness, or in particular phenomenal consciousness, my feelings of warmth and cold, my sense of sadness and so on, the consciousness, uh, the real, um, you might almost say conscious consciousness, the kind of consciousness that is addressed in the so-called hard problem. The case for the identity of phenomenal consciousness and neural activity seems in, to me to be based on a bit of a slither. The slither really is from a rough correlation to causation. From the idea that neural activity is associated with phenomenal consciousness, rather we noted in the case of the Wilder-Penfield experiments, to the notion that neural activity causes phenomenal consciousness. And then a further sliver from the notion that neural activity causes phenomenal consciousness to the one we're concerned about this afternoon, that neural activity is identical with consciousness. Now this slither has, of course, been challenged from Victorian times. Here, for example, is the view of Alfred Wallace, the man who nearly beat Darwin to the theory of evolution. The passage from the physics of the brain, he said, to the corresponding facts of consciousness is unthinkable. Where our minds and senses so expanded, strengthened and illuminated as to enable us to see and feel the very molecules of the brain, were we capable of following all their motions, we should be as far as ever from the solution of the problem, how are these physical processes connected with the facts of consciousness. The chasm between the two classes of phenomena would still remain intellectually impassable. Well, intellectually impassable or not, neurophilosophers like Daniel Dunnett and Patricia Churchill would say, it's a brute fact, just get over it. It's, you know, it's, it's puzzling, of course. And if you're Colin McGinn, you would say the reason why we can't see how, as it were, the water of neural activity produces the wine of consciousness is because we are biologically constrained in the th sort of things we can understand. That ar argument actually is deeply flawed, but it was published in Mind and caused a lot of interest many years ago. So I think the question that really needs to be asked is, can you really be a sincere or consistent materialist and believe that conscious persons are brain activity? So you could build a person out of neural activity using, and I quote again, Danette, the same physical principles, laws and raw materials that suffice to explain radioactivity, continental drift, etc. If we conclude that we can't, and we can't in principle, then we need to abandon the person-brain identity theory, the idea that what is in front of me, collection of persons, but essentially is a collection of brains. <coughs> now to test Donet's claim, which is pretty well orthodoxy, as he himself has said, I want to examine two aspects of ordinary, very ordinary consciousness. What philosophers call intentionality and what they call phenomenal appearances. And let me start with intentionality. It's got little or nothing to do with intentions. I think it's very important to set that aside. It's just a very similar sounding word. But it refers to the amazing, magical, extraordinary property of consciousness, most obviously perceptions, that they are about things other than themselves. 
Indeed, another word for intentionality is aboutness. And I want to illustrate this with a very simple example. The perception of a material object, such as this person looking at a glass. We have here the case of a person, an embodied subject, looking at an object that she appreciates is quite different from her. She's explicitly aware that this thing is other than me. Now, the laws of nature, as evident in the material world, would seem to be an ordinary operation as we follow the causal chain that links the events in the glass. Make sure if I press this knob, it doesn't. Ah, oh, good. The glass interfering with the light, and then there's a nice causal chain going here to the brain, stimulating neural activity. That's all straightforward uh, kind of principles of um, mechanical interaction, causal interaction, or whatever you like, that we see throughout the material world. <coughs> However, and, and, and so we have, as I say, uh, a causal chain going from the glass right into the retina and the visual pathways, terminating in the part of the cerebral cortex at the back of the head which is particularly associated with vision. And indeed, this causal sequence, marked by the up arrow, may actually go beyond that and have some kind of behavioral output. So I might blink when I, you know, if the light flashes in my eye and so on. But this causal chain, this causal arrow, isn't awareness of the glass. Awareness of the glass is indicated by a lower arrow. That one there. Now this lower arrow, it seems to be pointing in, the direct, in a reverse direction to causation, but it's not, of course, reverse co co causation, or it's not feedback, or some kind of reaching for the glass. Nothing as crude or magical. But the point is that it's quite different from causation. It is the link that uh, we would... Uh, that, 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 that it is a link between perceptions and their objects. And this link, the extraordinary nature of it, the lower arrow, is made more obvious and made more obviously mysterious by the very claim that perceptions are identical with activity in the brain. So here's the activity over here. And there's the glass over there. The causal chain, the processes and the laws by which the light gets into and passes down the visual pathways are, do not encompass the gaze that's looking out. There's something going on here that is entirely at odds with the laws of material nature as they apply to the things that Danette listed. It has no place in the world picture of physical science. And it's what philosophers would call a nomological dangler. It doesn't, nomological means relating to the laws. It sort of sticks out from the normal laws of causal interaction we see in the material world. We can highlight this oddness in a different way. Firstly, intentionality reaches, as it were, causally upstream. If the perception of the glass were identical with activity in the visual cortex, that activity would then be mysteriously reaching back to its own causal antecedents. Sorry, I'm just going... Just talking with Excel a second while I pantless it, yeah. So if perception were identical with what's going on here, what's going on here occurs before what's going on here. So we have a situation where what's going on here appears to be looking backwards, going causally backwards or reaching backwards up the causal chain that led to the neural activity. And in interestingly, it reaches past some of its causal antecedents. For example, the intentionality goes past the activity 
that's in the retina. But it stops short of others. It stops at the glass. Secondly, the objects of our or human perception exceed that which is revealed to our senses. Perception goes beyond sentience. Object perception is the most basic example of the fact that as Barry, the philosopher Barry Stroud has said, our objects of knowledge, like this glass, are underdetermined by whatever it is we get through the source of knowledge known as our senses or our experiences. That is to say, my sense that there is an object independent of my experiences that has properties yet to be disclosed clearly goes beyond my experiences. So in summary, the law-governed causal pathways seen in the material world don't capture what happens even in an elementary example of a person being aware of a glass. Never mind when she's aware, say, of another person being aware of her or aware of the social pressure to conform to some kind of norm. This has motivated some desperate suggestions to get rid of intentionality. And it has prompted the connected notion that consciousness is not about objects distinct from itself. These include the assertion that consciousness is the brain's experience of itself, or that consciousness is our perception of some physical process in the brain. In short, that consciousness and the appearance of that which seems to appear of us are made of the appearance of nerve impulses themselves. In other words, our experiences don't get beyond nerve impulses. This is a very, very unhappy suggestion and is recognized by one or two writers. For example, the philosopher of biology, Alex Rosenberg, in his fairly recent book, mind, he says, is identical with brain or neural activity. A thought must be an event in the brain, but no neural activity can be about anything inside or outside of itself. Indeed, he says, inside or outside the mind. No thought, therefore, is about anything at all. What can one say but speak for yourself, mate? <laughs> now, what about phenomenal appearances, such as the colours and shapes and the textures and the warmths and so on of the ordinary objects that surround us? Or indeed, the experiences we have of our own body. Conscious beings, such as persons, are entities in virtue of which items, such as material objects, have appearances to the viewpoint of an individual subject or person. Now, if a person is a material object, such as a brain, then it's valid to ask the question, do material objects themselves have appearances? I mean, I, do they have items which either correspond to or form the basic contents of consciousness? And we can approach this question in a couple of ways. The first is to note that the concept of matter, or the basic stuff of the world, as seen through the eyes of physics, which is supposed to be the most faithful portrait of what matter is, of the fundamental stuff of the world, has no place for, cannot accommodate, appearances. The second is that the notion of material objects having an appearance in itself, or in themselves, independent of any viewpoint, is self-contradictory. And I'll come to that in a second. But let me focus on the idea that material objects have appearances in themselves. We can see this indirectly when we notice how the descriptions of the world, as the descriptions of the world approach an account that sees it as configurations of matter, as physicists do, there is a progressive disappearance of appearance. In fact, ultimately, matter is a quantitative rather than a qualitative concept. Consider an item such as a table. As I experience it, it may seem large or small, light brown or dark brown, heavy or light. 
as seen through the lens of physical science, as matter, even if we don't drill down to the atomic level, the table boils down to certain quantities. Two foot by two foot, such and such a weight, the light reflected from it, a certain mixture of wavelengths. This approach to the table, which bypasses those things that are peculiar to my view or yours, as it becomes progressively more objective and are more appropriate for a law-based understanding, gradually removes phenomenal, phenomenal appearances. Those phenomenal appearances are dismissed as being ontologically a bit shabby, as merely so-called secondary qualities. So the warmth of heat, the opposition of inertia, the brightness of light are all stripped off. In short, to reiterate, there is a progressive disappearance of phenomenal appearance of that which fills or constitutes basic consciousness as we cone down on matter as it is portrayed in the most authentic portrait, portrait that of physics. So the world according to physics and the kind of laws that, should, that treat earthquakes and photosynthesis equally, the laws that Danette was referring to, is a world in which appearance has been made willfully to disappear. Another way of looking at this is to see that the phys physical science has as its goal or explanatory end the most general laws that represent the sum total of things and hence things viewed from no particular perspective. The equations linking patterns of measured change are delocalized. They offer not so much a view from nowhere as a view without a viewpoint. How do things look when you don't have a viewpoint, when you don't have the subjective viewpoint? Well, this is how a rock or a mountain or the world would appear from no viewpoint or from the viewpoint of the material world itself. An item such as a rock cannot have an appearance that is neither from the front or the back, from above or below, from within or without, from near or far. And this, by the way, is how the material world is seen from within the material world construed according to laws of physical nature, the laws that Danette referred to. So a sincere materialist cannot look to a material object such as the brain to be the basis of phenomenal consciousness. Things are no better if we focus on neural activity because these are just biophysical events, waves of, 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 of um, electrochemical waves passing down neurons. They don't have an appearance in themselves and there's nothing within them to make other items appear. And this is connected with one of the many intractable problems facing those who wish to reduce consciousness to neural activity. Namely, that very little of the activity in the central nervous system is indeed associated with consciousness. So from this we can infer that there is nothing in nerve impulses per se that would make them conscious of themselves, or even less conscious of a world. So the hunt is on to identify those additional characteristics that neural activity would have to have in order to transform it from a background to consciousness into consciousness itself. So people have said, referred to location in a particular part of the brain. This is the bit of the brain that, where consciousness is manufactured or whatever. Or in several parts of the brain linked together in ensemble. But none of these offer any plausible, plausible explanation of how biophysical events, waves of electrical chemical activity, should take on an entirely different character and its particular parts of the brain or in certain configurations, should suddenly become consciousness. Consciousness of themselves, of the person, of the world the person's in. It's almost as if neural activity travels to a certain place and becomes, as it were, mind-like. Well, we know that travel broadens the mind, but it's not clear why travel to a particular place in, the in, in a brain 
would bro broaden neural activity into a mind. And there are other sort of subsidiary questions which we sometimes forget to ask, the sort of questions a child might ask as to whether consciousness reposes in the travelling or the arrival, or in the excitation of bits of circuits of the brain which can be seen from the outside to combine the two. What little plausibility candidates for the criteria for neural activity that will become conscious have is often actually borrowed from an outside conscious viewpoint. A pattern of activity, an ensemble or a circuit, count as one thing, able to top themselves up to a conscious entity only from a viewpoint that synthesizes it. They don't synthesize themselves. But borrowing a viewpoint is not legitimate because, as we've seen, there are no viewpoints in the material world. And this is connected with an earlier point. Since the universe described by the laws of physics has no viewpoint, while persons most certainly do have viewpoints, the former cannot capture the latter. So we come to the matter of first-person being, the I that is so essential to the person. The existential reality of personhood, mehood, youhood, the, pers the perspective-based, interest-rooted viewpoint of the person has even less place in the material world than just phenomenal appearance. <coughs> no piece of matter could or would be the centre of egocentric space in the way that I am the centre of the space in which I'm presently standing up. The brain qua matter could not insert a centre into a material world that it has intrinsically no centre and indeed no periphery. There's no near or far, inside or outside, mine or not mine, here or there uh, in, egocent in, 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 the, in the brain. There is, what is more, nothing to provide the basis for the situation where I am my brain, because first-person being, with the I and the possessive pronoun, and the am as opposed to is, could not get a foothold in a universe. And by the way, the universe is not even third-person. It's no-person. This is, of course, connected with the unavailability of intentionality in the material world. The first-person is the subjectively experienced centre of a world opened up by intentionality in a material world that has no centre. But as a first-person being, I face or confront a world, rather than merely being causally wired into it, like a stone or a bacterium or any unconscious bit of living matter. First-person being, the ego or the I, poses another problem for the neuralizers of consciousness. Even if we shrivel the person in question to mere moments of a self, it's this. The many experiences we have at any one time, sights, sounds, smells, other sensations, as well as memories, thoughts and emotions, are in some sense unified. They have a subjective unity where they are experienced as belonging to the self at the same time. So you're hearing my voice droning on, feeling the pressure of the seat under your bottom, feeling a little bit hot, wondering how long this is going to go on for. All of those things belong to a conscious moment. They belong to a sense of me here now so-called co-consciousness, consciousness of many things all at once. Now, the different contents of consciousness are supposed to be kept apart, according to neuroanatomy and neurophysiology, by being located in different parts of the brain. But they're also required to come together, for the reason I've just indicated. But however this convergence is accomplished, say by merging the pathways between the different parts of the brain, those contents would always seem, in the very act of becoming unified, to lose their distinctiveness, to become boiled down to some unholy soup of undifferentiated awareness. 
So one of the most striking mysteries of the so-called field of consciousness, of my moment-to-moment -moment self, is that it is unified while it still retains the distinctiveness, the multiplicity of its contents. I have to say that is much more, to me, mysterious and puzzling than the three-in-one of the Trinity. It's, an, it's the million-in-one which still retains their, both their oneness and their millionness. This problem has got a name. It's been called the binding problem. But how we bring things, how, we, how things are bound together. And there have been many attempts to find a solution to it. And these attempts mostly depend on the idea that certain physical properties common to large bits of the swathes of the brain can somehow bring together activity scattered across different regions. All the different regions will be activated at once in the moment of consciousness without losing their spatial separateness. That's the general theory. Proposed candidates for the special properties have include electromagnetic fields, synchronous electro electrical oscillations in large sections of the cerebral cortex, and my favorite, quantum coherence, which actually is maintained, but for about 10 to the minus 18 seconds, which is even shorter than the attention span of a teenager. <laughs> but all of these candidates fail for the simple reason that they rely on objective or externally observed unities being translated into a subjective or immediately experienced unity, with no reason being offered for why this should happen. The appeal to synchronous activity occurring across large stretches of the nervous system, Craig said at one stage, although he withdrew the idea eventually, was that what bound the activity in large quantities of the cortex together was uh, uh, 35 hertz activity uh, going, um, uh, occurring in, I say, in large, large quantities of the cortex. But the appeal to synchronous activity illustrates just how insincere the materialism of those who would identify mind and brain is because they're ascribing mat to matter properties that are borrowed from mind. Anybody with the slightest um, acquaintance with relativity theory will know that there is no synchrony, there is no simultaneity in the material world per se. It is entirely dependent on viewpoint. In other words, synchrony is a property of experience, not something that can be, as it were, made available to make experiences simultaneous in all they should be part of a single whole. So the pressure on my feet uh, I can feel at the moment and the sound of my voice in my head will become part of a single whole. Now this insincerity, really taking the notion of the mind as a piece of matter seriously, is also evident in attempts to make sense of the temporal depth of the person, of the fact that you and I are aware of things that are explicitly past and we anticipate things that explicitly future. Let's just focus on the past. The standard story of memory is that it is, to use Bergson's sardonic phrase, a cerebral deposit. It's most commonly understood as the, as the effect that past events have had on the excitability of parts of the brain, resulting in changes in the synapses that join together neurons. A memory is a reactivated circuit that is prone to be reactivated because it's been excited in the past. So why is this standard story metaphysical nonsense? There are numer numerous reasons, but I want to focus on two. The first is that it requires the present state of the brain to reach up or back to the causes of its present state, and secondly then to locate those causes at a temporal distance from the present. In other words, if I remember agreeing to this lecture 
not only do I have a present experience of remembering to agree to the lecture, but I locate it in the past, six months ago or whenever. Our explicit memories, so-called episodic memories, are explicitly of something that's not present, something that we know and assert is actually explicitly past. So memory requires a double intentionality, two layers of aboutness. A memory is about an experience that it was itself about that which it was an experience of. As discussed before, intentionality is not a property of the material world, and this applies even more clearly to the double intentionality of memory. But there's another problem, namely that tensed time, the past, the present, and future, doesn't exist in the material world. For this, I have no lesser authority than her, Professor Einstein. Physicists, he said, know that the distinction between past, present, and future is only a stubbornly persistent illusion. This was in a favour, in a famous, though to me rather tactless letter, to the recently widowed wife of his oldest friend. Basically, he was saying, cheer up, ducky. Uh, you know, the marriage is both in the future and in the past and in the present. The point it is made, though, is there are no tenses without a conscious viewpoint. So in other words, you have to import something outside of the brain or whatever lump of matter you're considering in order to have tensed time, the sense of explicit past present and future. There are many other characteristics of the person that cannot be captured by an account that sees the person as the property of material object, even a material object as upmarket as the brain. I just mentioned briefly ownership, the sense that our experiences are our experiences in the rather complex sense of possession that needs much touching out, needs much teasing out. And we talk about our brains. When I say you are your brain, somehow, we uh, still retain the notion of something or someone or other possessing the brain. The brain, of course, is no one's brain. And then there's the question of agency or free will, which I'm happy to discuss. But I want to move on to the question of why, if brainhood and personhood are so obviously distinct, so you are not your brain, why does the notion that you are your brain, why does it command such credence? Well, there are four reasons or strategies that are mobilized by those who want to persuade us that what is actually obviously untrue is true. And these are the strategies. Thinking by transferred epithet, hopeful hand-waving, denying the reality of what neuroscience can't see, and then arguing, as Margaret Thatcher often did, there is no alternative. Tina. Now first, thinking by transferred epithets. This results in personifying the brain in order to brainify the person. You ascribe to brains, or bits of brains, attributes that you really should be ascribing to persons. So, for example, you talk about neurons communicating with one another, bits of the brain sending messages, brains having intentions, and so on and so forth. And there is much fancy footwork between brains, machines, and conscious minds. Indeed, in much of the discourse, there is a merging of brains, minds, and machines. The next strategy is to use hand-waving terms, which promise much so long as they're not examined closely, and promise much less when we ask for clarity. And the terms are emergence, complexity, and supervenience. In particular, there's the appeal to emergence. I recently had the rather alloyed pleasure of reviewing Terence Deakin's 500-page book on how mind emerged from matter by living matter and other thermodynamic systems for the Wall Street Journal. 
And it's a good example of how, as it were, with a bit of fancy footwork, with a bit of leisure de main, you can somehow manage to extract uh, the wine of consciousness uh, from the water of the material world. Yes, of course, squids do have different properties from crystals, but this doesn't demonstrate that the difference between unconscious crystals and conscious human beings can be explained by emergence, usually on the basis of increased complexity. Anyone who appeals to complexity to explain why the brain is consciousness, conscious why the, while the skull isn't, or indeed it, most other material objects aren't, anybody who appeals to complexity should be challenged on two fronts. What do they mean by complexity? How are they going to measure it? How are they going to diagnose it? And secondly, why it should deliver the difference between, say, a bacterium innocent of its own existence and a person with all the characteristics I've been talking about. The usual response to this challenge is ever more frantic hand-waving. Supervenience is a term that particularly amuses me. It's usually invoked as a corrective to the self-inflicted wound of an infravenient description of something. But in all case, three cases of the use of these terms, there is an endeavour to get something different and yet to stay with the same. And they're what I call Tommy Cooper or Kundra's, just like that, explanations. The ambiguity is, not, is whether or not the laws governing the behaviour of that from which the emerging took place and that which has, has emerged are the same. In any case, in, in no instance have I come across a description of the emergence of mind from matter where Danette's promises about the same principles, same laws has been kept. Another strategy, of course, is to deny the existence of those things that cannot be accommodated in neuroscience. The self, the ego, and ag ag agency have frequently been dismissed as somehow illusions, as ontologically second-rate, not really items that exist. And bolder or more desperate spirits, including Danette, have dismissed the basic contents of consciousness, such as tastes and sights and the sounds of things, so-called qualia. And they've dismissed so propositional attitudes, such as beliefs, as relics of pre-scientific folk psychology. A not infrequent claim, it's the only thing I'm going to say about agency or free will, not infrequent claim is that agency and free will, and indeed the self, are illusions cooked up in the brain. But that does raise some rather interesting questions. Why should a piece of matter, a mere byway in the causal net, come to the false conclusion that it's somewhat superior to other pieces of matter? And by what material means would another, would another piece of matter make the mistake of becoming aware that it is what it is? This seems even more difficult to explain than the self and free will it is explained, it, it aimed to explain away. It's time. We're glad to know for me to draw to a close. I'm conscious that the scope of my talk is such that I've touched on many things very superficially. In particular, I have glided over or bypassed the different challenges that face us when we're trying to make sense of the sentience, which is widely distributed in the animal kingdom, and human consciousness, with some very distinct characteristics, such as the full-blown sense of an independent objective reality around ourselves, as well as more superficial things, such as reasoning, propositional awareness, knowledge, and a sense of right and wrong. Most importantly, I have focused on the troubles of neurophilosophy, which is really what I've been criticizing. But I'm aware that anti-neurophilosophy, anti which is what I've been uh, supporting, is not without its troubles. Those who still insist on hanging on to the belief that being a person boils down to being a brain, 
are entitled to challenge me with several questions that I think I can't answer. Why, if the brain is not the base of consciousness, is it so intimately bound up with our awareness and our, our behaviour? What are we to make of the genuine advances of neuroscience? And I have to tell you, I'm not at all unaware of those advances. Uh, I added my little grain of wheat to the ant heap myself in the various papers I wrote in clinical neuroscience. So there are genuine advances in neuroscience. What are we to make of these if we don't believe that neural activity is identical with consciousness and that we are our brains? Should we abandon brain science entirely as a source of understanding of personhood? Where would the brain fit into a metaphysics, an epistemology, an ontology that, de if, that denies a place, the brain a place at their centre? How should we also deal with the fact that we are evolved organisms, of course we are, but we're also persons? How should we deal with this? And I think these are some of the questions that I think anti-neurophilosophers like me should be obliged to address. In the meantime, I hope you are persuaded that you are not your brain, or at least have started to doubt that you are a brain. And when anyone starts telling that brain science and peering into the intracranial darkness is the royal road to understanding persons, you will say, hang on a moment. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for your attention, or at least for the courtesy of simulating it. Thank you. <laughs>